Welcome to Ordinarily Extraordinary Conversations with Women in STEM. I'm your host, Kathy Nelson, an electrical engineer who loves to hear and share stories of other women in STEM. It's not very often that I get to sit down with one of my coworkers to hear and share their story, but that's exactly what I get to do today. I sit down with Dr. Shelley Hagerman, who works as a consultant in the energy and utility industry. Shelley has a PhD in engineering and public policy. She specializes in distributed energy resources and electric vehicle strategy and data analytics. In addition to being incredibly smart and passionate about her work, Shelley is an incredibly talented pianist. She has dual bachelor's degrees in engineering and music. I cannot wait to share her story. Hey, how are you? All right. How are you? I like your, your setup there. It's very fancy. I, I feel like I should be like a DJ. <laughs> <laughs> a DJ at my desk. So this is behind my desk. Um, yeah. So I could, I could be like super um, nerdy and awkward on any meeting that we have at work. <laughs> I think you should join a meeting like that. That would be pretty awesome. I am super excited to talk to you because I don't, I haven't actually interviewed very many people that I work with. So I am excited to be able to interview you and learn more about you. So thank you for joining me. So we've worked together I for a little bit and we've had a chance to talk, but what do you actually do for a job? I do consulting, working with electric utilities, helping them with their distributed energy resources or DER strategy, as well as their electric vehicle or EV strategy. So hopefully, as we talk, I'll, if I use any acronyms, I'll, I'll try to, to define them. Uh, but yeah, so do a lot of work in terms of helping utilities design and file for different customer programs to help with their clean energy and decarbonization goals. Oh, and so you, you don't also don't need to worry too much about defining acronyms because I will put them into episode notes. You have a really interesting background and a really interesting combination of degrees. So you have a PhD in engineering and public policy. And I will say I have done engineering and I have done public policy, but it was much later on in my career that I realized there was a tie between the two and the importance of that tie. How did you figure out that that's what you wanted to do a PhD in and was there actually a program that combined the two? And what got you interested into the combination of them? Because I think, like I said, I think it's a really unique and interesting combination. And honestly, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you. It started in undergrad where I started to get interested in electric power systems and, and DERs. And so, you know, for example, going into my junior year, I started doing some fuel cell research. Um, with a professor at Smith College, my undergrad. In doing that, plus some coursework around solar PV and fuel cell design and other power systems classes, uh, really got an interest in, in thinking of, in doing work around um, these, these technologies. So when I was preparing to go from undergrad to what's next, one of the natural options was to explore PhD programs, given that by then I had about two and a half years of research experience um, from undergrad. So I, you know, in trying to figure out what I wanted to do, I was really interested in doing something very applied in terms of, you know, t thinking about the economics of solar energy storage and other technologies like that. And so when I was looking at different types of PhD programs, you have a lot of your traditional programs that are maybe more mechanical engineering or electrical engineering, et cetera. Um, but it, it was kind of too focused on the technologies themselves versus the business side of it. And so I think that's where, when I discovered the, um, at Carnegie Mellon University, the engineering and public policy program, uh, I felt like I've, it just was pretty much a perfect fit um, in terms of, you know, the, a lot of the work that they do um, they have a lot of work focused in this area in particular. And then what's really cool, obviously, about that program is it is a great blend of experience from both the engineering side and the public policy side it happens to all come together there, which, you know, I think as you know from working in the electric utility industry as a regulated industry, so much of it is driven by regulatory policy. Really, it, it helps to provide that framework of 
you know, what are the societal benefits? What, you know, what are the, those co- different cost tests, et cetera? That really is how I kind of landed there. One of my first research task or, you know, focuses uh, was on, you know, exploring the economics of, of solar for residential customers across the U.S. And so that was just a, a great opportunity to get an idea of the, the landscape in terms of all the different electricity prices across the country, how that kind of would affect a consumer's value proposition for adopting solar, then starting to also get to more exposure on the variance of different policies like net metering etc um so yeah that was a really long-winded answer um but yeah it was it was great to find um a unique program that really fit kind of where i wanted to go given that that is the direction that you went with your phd i'm assuming that you had plans to go into industry and not into academia when you were pursuing your phd is that a correct assumption yes um i maybe considered a little bit at first, potentially staying in academia, but all in all, throughout all my direction, I, I really wanted to be doing something with a more direct, like where I could really see the results more quickly. Um, and so when I was in my PhD program, I was considering either basically either working in consulting within an area where I can be dedicated to this industry or I also explored things like national labs, such as the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, um, or other research-based organizations in, in the industry. Um, but I was very much industry-focused, basically, and then just figure out the right avenue uh, for that. When you started out in school, did you know that you wanted to go higher than undergrad and get a PhD or what made you want to move to that next level and, and pursue that? Cause I will say you're probably one of the few, I don't know if only, but the only one that I've met um, at our company that has a PhD, what made you decide that you wanted to go to that next level? Yeah. So that's an interesting background and question there. So when I was in undergrad, um, I, you know, I was, basically finding a way every semester to be able to come back financially. So I was always just trying to, you know, just even getting through undergrad was a, was a big accomplishment for me to, to get through tuition and room and board, et cetera. Um, and when I started this research um, opportunity, which was actually motivated by, hey, I want to stay on campus and, and get a job for the summer. Right. So it started with that where and then I was like, cool, I can get a job doing research and kind of furthering my education. Then when working with that professor, I realized, you know, the opportunities that could be out there for me after college and how that would prepare me to be a a really good candidate in different Ph.D. programs in which I would actually not have to pay to go get my Ph.D. Um, So when I learned that I can go get my Ph.D., have tuition covered and also get a stipend. I was like, this is a fantastic opportunity, right? Um, and it was a lot more attractive than, for example, going to a master's program in which most master's programs you have to pay your own way. Even if they're shorter, I just wasn't in a position where I was going to be able to afford to do that. And so it seemed like an all around win opportunity to advance my education not have to pay for it. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I just, I, you know, went after that, um, because I think it was a, it was a great fit. So this was something else that I was going to ask you about. So you don't have a master's degree. You went from undergrad to a PhD program without a master's. How does that work? I think it's a a little bit less common, but it definitely does happen. Um, I'm going to just make up a number, and this is probably wrong, but maybe about 20% of my PhD program came straight from undergrad. Um, And technically, I did acquire a master's in passing during that PhD, but I was always enrolled in the PhD program. Um, So I think that generally when people are making that leap from undergrad to a PhD program, obviously the, the, the programs want to make sure that you are are looking for that research background. Right. And so Mm -hmm. I did 
in undergrad, I did a thesis taking all the work I did with that professor for the two and a half or so years. I turned that into a, um, a thesis. And so that kind of gave me that great example of I'm already doing research based work. Right. And it, it, it translates really well into demonstrating that your PhD, you know, candidacy. So if you hadn't done that research, you would not have been able to pursue a PhD directly. Is that my understanding? I think it would have been a lot more challenging. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure, but I think that definitely created the solid ground to make that um, application and and really um, stand out too. Okay. Interesting. Um, Okay. So I want to talk about your undergrad because you went from this like very I think you have, you have such an interesting background. So your undergrad is engineering and music, and then your PhD is engineering and public policy. And I know there's a tie between like STEM fields and music. I have met several people who either have been music majors that then went into STEM fields or STEM fields that do music on the side. Music and public policy are, (laughs) maybe they're related. I'm not really sure how, but I think it's really interesting that that's where you started um, and you had degrees in both engineering and music, correct? Yes. And then going into engineering and public policy. So tell me like, what got you into music and what made you decide to pursue a dual degree in both music and engineering? And was there ever a point that you were considering continuing or like doing a career in music versus engineering? Yeah, so it all started technically when I was much, much younger, and I I grew up playing the piano. Um, so I started the piano, playing the piano at uh, when I was eight years old, um, and then I actually went to a visual performing arts high school, where piano and music was half of my day um, throughout high school, and I was really passionate about it. Um, I, you know, I'm kind of in high school, split my time between music and then some AP classes. So I had, you know, was continuing to advance my other parts of education. And I took some courses at a community college um, just to get a little bit further in some of the STEM areas. Um, But when I was in high school, you know, I had some real conversations with my piano uh, teacher and she was just like, you know, you're you're too good at math, you know, and, and she's, you know, just encouraged me to explore career options outside of music, just because it, it can, it's very hard as a musician to have a career. And, you know, given, I think, my background and my talents, you know, she just really wanted me to take a, keep an open mind and explore other options. Because also sometimes when you do make music your career, you can lose your passion for music. Mm-hmm. Right? It becomes no longer fun and no longer enjoyable. And it's just a job. And that's something I really wanted to preserve. Uh, and so I, when selecting uh, undergrad college, I was looking for somewhere where I could do both, right? And so, you know, for example, I could have done a more technical school, which some of them do have music programs, etc. But it also would have been probably much, much more intense all around where I I probably wouldn't have had any bandwidth to really do the music as well. So I, you know, discovered Smith College. um, And it was a great fit on, on many elements. And they have an engineering program, which was actually like the first ABEC accredited engineering college at a women's college. They also had a music program. Um, And so I started originally just majoring in engineering and I was going to maybe minor in music. And I kind of did the whole minoring also just to uh, actually get my piano lessons for free. Hmm. (laughs) There's a lot of things. Good idea. No, that's that's... (laughs) So I was like, awesome, I can totally do this minor and yay, I'll get to continue doing piano. As I was going on, I just realized, wait, I don't have to do that much more to get that major. So I just ended up doing the double major, you know, and and 
college, my junior and senior years, I still actually did a full hour long or so piano, solo piano recital. Um, and so that was really cool. And I, mm-hmm. I love doing that um, primarily because it's an opportunity to play amazing pianos in an amazing Like the big piano. giant grand pianos in the big right. auditoriums. Oh God, that yeah. sounds so I, awesome. I, just, I always just find it so inspiring to like, that's what I look forward to is being there in that hall playing that piano and every every note that you play it's just like you're hearing it in a different way because mm-hmm. the acoustics are amazing and the whole action of the piano is so amazing and all that stuff so it's just mm-hmm. a really rewarding uh experience um i know that was a little bit of a tangent but things i love about piano and performing uh are really just that it's just a whole nother uh, experience. Um, but yeah, so I just made it happen, um, between those, those two degrees. And then after Smith college, when I went to Carnegie Mellon, I still wanted to keep, you know, piano alive. And so I joined the jazz ensemble there as well. So I played in the jazz ensemble for the four years I was at Carnegie Mellon. And also while I was at Carnegie Mellon, I decided one day I was like, you know what? I, I was actually feeling a little bored and I went on Craigslist and I stumbled across the, in the wanted ads or something, a piano teacher. It's like, you know what? I used to teach piano when I was younger, um, helping my piano teacher teach others. Um, and I just applied or, you know, I reached out and then I went and I auditioned for this family and, and they became my first, uh, you know, students. And then they referred me to more people. And then I was teaching like five or six people in Pittsburgh. Um, it was really random, but it was, it was great. It was fun. And it was a good way to kind of take a break from the PhD work. And it was just really a rewarding experience. Since then, I haven't been in any ensembles or whatnot. But then now I have a piano at home that I really enjoy playing and it's great for if you know had a stressful day or anything just to go to the piano and as a big part of my life. Okay, I've got to ask you, what kind of piano do you have at home? Like, do you have like a like a baby grand or what kind of piano do you have at home? I, I must confess, I have a larger than a baby grand. You have a full have size a, grand piano. I have a full size. Oh my gosh, Yamaha so grand piano. So I, I actually used to work at a piano store when I was in high school. In high school, I had like four, two to four jobs at any point in time. And one of those was working at a piano store. So um, I, you know, made a f- trip down to, to my friend uh, and, you know, played every piano in the store. And I was like, and I just fell in love with one of them. Uh, and it just happened to be one of the, the biggest one in the store. <laughs> Okay. Do you have a piano room or where does your grand piano sit? I do. It is basically called the piano room. It sits in our, our front living room. Um, so there's a, there's the grand piano. And then in, in most of the year, there's also an upright bass in the room and then a couple couches. And so, you know, in pre pandemic and hopefully post pandemic, just a great little, gathering room and people can hang out and hopefully enjoy some music. Um, but yeah, so I have a, basically a whole room, uh, dedicated to it. Oh my gosh. I'm so jealous. I played piano from kindergarten until 12th grade. And then I really haven't played it since I had like our crappy upright in our house for a while. My kids took lessons on it. And then when my kids quit playing, taking lessons, I got rid of it because I've minimized things. But I have this idea in my head, like when I, when I retire, right? Like everything's funny, you retire. Um, of like, and I would have to completely like take lessons again. It's been so long, but I'm, I love, I love the fact that people have music as part of their daily lives. Like I'm honestly like really envious. Um, and one of the things that I have been working on is trying to find ways to play, right? This like kind of came up in a couple of podcasts I listened to and in talking with my therapist and trying to figure out like how to have fun, like as an adult, now that my kids are leaving, cause I'd never like, I, and I'm not really, but 
it sounds like music is where you find your joy, which I think means that you probably made the right career decision because you're right. I think, you know, they talk about like plumbers are always the one that have the leaky pipes and stuff. And so, um, being able to have fun at, at something I think is really, really important. So is that where you get your joy is from music and from playing piano? Cause it sounds very much like that is a lot of where you're at least in talking to you, that sounds like where your joy is coming. Yeah, I think, you know, you raise a really great point. And I think that is where the majority of my, my joy comes from, or, or maybe another way is it's like the completely safe space joy. <laughs> like there's not, there's not other things that come in and try to interrupt that joy. Whereas, you know, sometimes like I, I am very passionate about the, the work that I do, but obviously in work, not everything's perfect. There are challenges that come up and whatnot. Um, and so I think this with the piano, it's a very healthy, protected, safe space to have something that you really enjoy, that you're investing the time for yourself. Recently, I've been I have a, f- a few Beethoven Sonata books and I just made it my random mission this year to start from the beginning. And I'm just like, you know, what? I'm going to start learning from the beginning of the first page. I don't even care which one it is, right? I'm just gonna start learning these. Um, and so it's been really cool and, and really fun to, like, you know, post time of having a piano teacher or piano professor to actually go through the learning process on my own of, mm-hmm. of new pieces. Um, and then it's just really cool then when I do uh, actually finish learning the piece, it's just, it's a really great rewarding feeling. So, Okay. So you talk about when like, you know, work being stressful, which yes, absolutely. Do you find that playing the piano is your stress reliever also? Yeah. Um, I've definitely taken a moment, you know, in the middle of the day, even, uh, especially now that I'm home all the time, um, to just go play the piano for 15 minutes. You know, I think it's just a great way to reset your, your thoughts, you know, cause when you, when I play, my attention is 100% on the piano. So it's like, you can do a lot of other things like watch TV or do other things, but you know, other thoughts will, will creep in. But I think when, when playing the piano, it's really the opportunity to complete, have complete focus on, on one thing. Um, and so I think that's just like a really great way to just kind of reset your mind. Yeah. Now you're making me think I need to get a piano sooner. I might have to like, <laughs> do some more thinking about this because I, I do, I, I miss it. I do. Um, and, and honestly, like, so you, you played like our dinner music, <laughs> I think probably at one of our first conversations that I had with you when we talked about this, it's amazing and so beautiful. And I have forgotten like how much I love listening to it and how much I've forgotten, you know, I've forgotten how much I love playing it. Not that I could play anywhere near. I, be, I, I feel like I'm like it back at like the very, like would be back at the, like the very rudimentary, but, um, yeah, I think I, piano to me is, is amazing. And like your ability that you play at is absolutely incredible. Okay. So I want to like walk back a little bit to what got you interested in engineering and what kind of things you were interested in, like when you were younger and that got you to, you know, even be thinking about engineering. I know you had mentioned that your math teacher was, or not your math teacher, but your piano teacher was um, influential in you going into engineering, which I think is super interesting and actually very awesome because teachers are so inspirational. I have at least have been an inspirational in my life, but mine have been like math teachers that have been inspirational to me to going into engineering. So what were your influences and what kinds of things were you interested in as a kid that kind of led you into what your career path ended up being? I really enjoyed my math classes in, in high school. And it was really funny that for one of the teachers I had in high school, I basically gave her a challenge because I, I kept on, you know, somehow getting over 100% on, on a lot of things. I'm not trying to be an overachiever here, but it was just really funny because then sometimes she actually would design the test. She's like, okay, I need to step this up. And so she would actually sometimes make it harder, try to make it harder. And then, you know, she really had to adjust the bell curve. 
<laughs> after, after that. Um, but anyway, so I, I really had a lot of fun in high school and math. And so I was, when I was looking into college, I was, you know, thinking of what are areas that were really using math. And one of those initial areas was actually physics. Um, which now I, I have a slight cringe thinking about like that that was my first direction. Um, and I only say slight cringe because first off, physics is really hard. <laughs> um, and I think the thing that for me was so challenging, even though physics basically defines kind of the way of everything, so much of it to me felt out of reach in terms of like it was so theoretical. It just didn't seem as connected like for some reason um whereas that's when i you know started exploring engineering because then for some reason it just clicked a lot better um in terms of okay like here's here's like a problem you're trying to solve um and it just seemed a lot more applied versus theoretical um so that's kind of my initial direction was into physics but then i just I wasn't feeling it, uh, so then I, I kind of pivoted and discovered engineering. And I think I, I got some of that through also those community college courses I took during high school. I took a physics class, um, and it just seemed, I don't know, I, I just, I didn't get a lot from it in terms of, like, I felt like I was just memorizing formulas and equations and going through the ropes but i wasn't having i wasn't having much of a connection to it um so that's ultimately you know again why i how i kept on exploring and then discovered um engineering what did your parents do and were they influential at all, at all in what you ended up going into my dad he does wealth management and so you know, that probably actually gave me some of my business interests um, in terms of just thinking more applied and not I think about it, maybe even on the whole economics thing that might have come in to play there. Um, and then my mom, she was always very, she did a bunch of different types of jobs um, throughout her career, uh, but she was just really smart and she was just incredibly supportive of me for whatever direction I went. So, you know, she really enjoyed when I, you know, played the piano. She was always proud of my academic achievements. Um, so I just felt like that support to really explore whatever would make me happy. And then, you know, again, she was just really smart. So I, I think I got a lot of that uh, from her. So yeah, that was just kind of some of that shaping. Uh, but so I just felt really empowered to kind of follow my heart and my gut, you know what I mean? And in terms of making decisions about college and then, you know, what I would study, et cetera. So I've got, I've got three kids and I hope that, I hope, but I also don't know that I was necessarily probably as openly encouraging to them because I've always like trying to try to steer them like towards STEM because I have this, I don't know, bias <laughs> trying to get people into STEM. Um, but I think that that's, I mean, that's, I think the best thing that you can do for your kids is to encourage whatever they are interested in, as opposed to trying to make them into like mini me's. Um, so I think that's, I think that's awesome. I actually want to go back because I forgot to ask you about this. Um, so Smith College and I wasn't aware of this because I probably because I, well, I, I had to go to school like nearby where I where I lived, which is the Midwest. Um, so you said Smith College is a women's only university. Is that correct? It's a it's a women's college. Yeah. So how was that experience? And do you think that and did you go to a like a um, was your high school a public high school? And was this like your first women's education experience and how was that experience compared to like co-ed experiences? I'm just, I'm just curious because I think, you know, there's a lot of conversations about how, you know, women do better at, um, you know, women's only education. They're more likely to raise their hands. They have more confidence, things like that. Did you find that from your experience? Yeah. And 
to answer one of your questions in high school, I did, yeah, I did go to public high school. Uh, and then at, at Smith, I think that is probably where I really started to further develop, you know, my confidence. And I think it is really unique in the classroom setting just to have, you know, all these women and that, you know, it's, it's like the stereotypical, you know, class with both with both men and women that the men will more often have their hands raised and be much more vocal about their thoughts and etc and so i think in that women's college setting uh it really you know obviously creates i feel like a lot more space and opportunity uh for women in both you know extroverted introverted etc a place for people to explore, grow, and develop. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it was, it was a great culture. Um, and I felt very comfortable, um, to raise my hand to maybe say something wrong, you know, whatnot. Um, it was just a great place to, to grow and develop. What about your professors? Were they all women? No, they were, I, I want to say it was probably roughly split um 50 50 if i were to, to guess um so it was definitely a mix so i have an electrical engineering degree in my engineering school so the school of electrical engineering so i went to north dakota state university and there was one woman professor <laughs> and i when i you know was started this podcast and was looking you know for guests i i had looked into like are there professors from my old college of engineering that i could have on the podcast there were no women <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yeah. So half actually seems pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. You're, that's a great point. I, I didn't really think about it that way in terms of it's probably not still representative of the whole and uh, just like in our industry. But yeah, no, it was in, in actually for the most part, it was women in, in a lot of the leadership positions too. Um, so oh it, it was a really, awesome. really great experience. Yeah. And I'm assuming, and this is an assumption, your male professors were also probably encouraging of women as opposed to, you know, I, I hear stories of male professors being very, well, that actually I have some of my own, being very discouraging to women going into engineering. So I'm assuming if you're, if you're teaching at a women's college, you're probably encouraging of those women going into the engineering classes that you're teaching too. Yeah, I am um, actually my advisor in undergrad was um it was a man. I never thought twice about it. Like I always felt encouraged and supported um in exploring both undergrad my my path there as well as transitioning to going to a PhD program. Super interesting to me and I I'm going to check this, but are there other like women's only colleges? I like I this is not something that I like really like looked into or really thought too much about. But I think it's I think it's really interesting. Yeah. So I don't know if any of my my knowledge is outdated, but you know, traditionally there's been the seven sisters. So there's at least seven women's colleges. And in fact, Smith is part of a five college consortium in Western Massachusetts, which also includes another women's college of Mount Holyoke. But then there's others like Wellesley. You probably heard of Wellesley mm-hmm. near Boston. Um, that's a women's college. And then there's just a few more again in those seven sisters. And there's probably some others outside of that. I'm going to do, I'm going to do a check and I'll put it, I'll put, um, whatever I find, you know, whether it's <laughs> accurate or not, whatever, whatever, whatever I can do with my, my internet research, I'll put on the, uh, on the episode notes. I hope you're enjoying this podcast and Shelly's story. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to support it, head over to your favorite podcast platform where you can rate it or even better, write a review, which will help other people find my podcast and bring these women's stories to more listeners. You can also find me, Kathy Nelson, at www.ordinarily-extraordinary.com. Thanks, and back to Shelly's story. What are you most proud of in your career and life so far? I think it's maybe just in this past few years, perhaps, of really becoming more of a leader and stepping into very tip of spear projects. In the first few years of of consulting, um, I felt like 
didn't quite know what to do with me. <laughs> I wasn't the typical consultant, you know, with, mm-hmm. with a PhD background for one and being so spe- have a background that was pretty specialized and we didn't have a lot of work in that area when I started. But then a couple of years ago is when I, you know, developed, for example, with one of my coworkers, you know, I developed this EV total cost of ownership calculator and it, it was a, a tip of spear into doing EV work. Um, and then, you know, I just led a bunch of projects over the past two years, really developing work in, in this area. And I think it's just, I feel very proud of building all of that. Um, so I think that's probably one of my greatest accomplishments of just going out and doing it. And people ask me all the time, like, how did you learn about this? What course did you take? I'm like, it's not one particular course and there's not a step-by-step guidance anywhere of how to build a model like X or Y or whatnot. Mm -hmm. It's just thinking, and I think this is from all of my diverse background in engineering, engineering public policy, et cetera, just being able to go from thinking about what's a problem, uh, you know, and thinking through how to solve it and like developing the logic. You don't have to know all the answers and figuring out a way to, to, to think through things and create things. Um, so I think it's just really fun and something I lean into versus being um, apprehensive about. Kind of like a learn by doing, which I think, you know, in engineering, there's, there's a big component to that. What do you hope to do in the future? Like, what are your future goals? in work and life? That's a really great question. And I'm still, I'm still trying to, to figure that out. Um, because I think, you know, you, in, just to build off of your, your last observation about learning by doing one thing that I'm still trying to figure out is I love doing the work so much. <laughs> and so for me, it's also finding that balance between doing the work and also managing the work um, amongst if others are just doing it, if I'm just being mm-hmm. more in that, in that managing of others that are mm-hmm. yep. doing. Especially as you move into leadership. Exactly. And so I think I just want to explore how I can have some of that balance if, if I can, you know what I mean? So I think there's a lot of questions, you know, to be determined on, on how I manage those, balance those two roles. Because I definitely really enjoy um, training others and, and helping others learn to, to do the things that I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also, I mean, I, I have to admit, it's a guilty pleasure that when I was like, oh, I'm going to have some time just to get into an Excel model and develop something. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's just like the thing I want to try to find a way to maintain, just like playing the piano. I was just like still having those bits and pieces of something that you're really passionate about as part of your, maybe, maybe not daily, but you know, still part of your, your life. And not losing them so that you have to go back and find them. For me, it's approaching empty nesting and having more time on my hands and going, I don't, I don't know where that went for me. You know, like the fact that I don't know how to play, I don't know how to have fun. I'm trying to figure out how to find joy. I like to keep that and not let that go away, I think is, is really important. And it's so, it's so interesting, like looking back on it, like, you know, for, for me, ha- having lost that, I think is, is really interesting. And then hearing you talk about how making sure that you're continuing that and making sure that you're being able to find that. Um, I think it's, it's, it's so important. I think it's more important than we realize. Yeah. Maybe just to add on to that. So I, I naturally just thought just about my professional aspirations uh, at the moment there. But, you know, I think something I'm trying to put more emphasis on is, is starting to build my community outside of work as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I moved to Columbus uh, about eight months or so pre pandemic. So I had a little bit of time as I started getting settled to, to, meet some people, mostly neighbors. Um, and then, but now I'm really looking forward to getting more involved in the community again. So whether it's, uh, I'm looking at a few different volunteering opportunities. So hoping to, to do that as a starting point. And I was actually just 
just last night, uh, we went with some of our, our neighbor friends. We went to a brewery. We were supposed to have a curling reservation, but unfortunately it got too warm recently. So we just had a an igloo reserved. And so we played a bunch of games and it was really fun. Uh, but while we were there in the main part of the brewery, you know, they had like a, a euchre tournament going on. I'm like, oh man, it just brought me back to the days of when I was in Pittsburgh. Uh, I actually played poker every Wednesday night, like religiously. Every Wednesday night, I went and played poker at a bar, and I really enjoyed that. And like, it was awesome to have a community of people that I I met with like every week, and it reignited that kind of desire. And so I, I hope that I can find something like that here, because um, that was something I really liked. And then outside of that too, you know, just looking forward, especially with the, the warmer weather coming, of just doing a lot of outdoor things. You know, we bought a couple kayaks last year, and so we're kind of exploring all the different lakes in Ohio. Having that time and, and taking that and really also taking PTO and going to do fun things. You know, we, we just went to Hawaii in last November, and that was incredible. So, and we also have this new policy that um, <laughs> sounds so formal or, or businessy. Whenever we're returning from a vacation, we work on booking our next vacation. So I think that's like a really great mental thing. And oh, it's like, so you always idea. have something to really look forward to. Um, and it helps like, you know, that like that post vacation sadness. Oh, I do. Maybe. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's like a great remedy of it. It's like, all right, well, we're done with this one, but hey, We've got this next one we're coming up, we're just, is coming up. So um, I think it's a great thing to do. Okay. So when you were coming back from Hawaii, what did you book? Well, that was a really big trip. So it took us a moment to, uh, to think for those next steps. But one thing we did book, it wasn't as quickly as I would have preferred, but we are going to the Finger Lakes this summer. Is that, is that New York? Yes. Okay. So we, we, got an Airbnb on one of the lakes and we'll be bringing our kayaks and we've invited family. And so just really looking forward to quiet time on the lake. And then to, there's a bunch of breweries and wineries in the area. Um, So lots of opportunities there as well. Well, I'm, I'm very big on lake life. I mean, I live in Minnesota and my husband loved lake life so much that we moved onto a lake. So we don't vacation onto a lake, but we live on a lake. So, you know, and you're welcome to anytime you want to bring your kayak up, you know, come on over. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Okay. Okay. Don't bring your kayak right now because right now you would need to chisel through like four feet of ice, but in the summertime, Minnesota is a great place to go and you know, you're welcome to kayak. That's awesome. Okay. So one of the things that we had talked about at one time is you went through a pretty significant physical challenge a couple of years ago and I'm curious if that's something that you want to share and how that affected you and your just, um, I mean, I know, it, I know it affected you and your work and your, you know, physical abilities and things like that. Do you want to talk through that? And then, you know, how going through that has changed your life just from a stand, you know, also from a standpoint of like perceptions and overcoming challenges and, and things like that? Yeah. So Basically, a couple of years ago, I was just, it was just another week, another day. <laughs> we were actually just driving back from um, an in-law's house. And I, during, actually that weekend, I started having a ear pain and like a little bit of a headache. And I was just not sure what was going on. And then we, we got back and we went to go walk the dog. And I had a sudden uh, intense vertigo attack. And I basically kind of was falling to the ground and I could not walk and it wouldn't stop. And, you know, so my my wife walked me back to the house. I was basically like leaning over on, on her. I, I, I really needed full assistance to, to walk after resting for an hour or so, it seemed like it passed. Uh, but then and I don't remember the full series of events, but over the next couple of days, it just got really bad. And I had a, 
uh, high fever and I couldn't get out of bed for probably several days. Um, and eventually, you know, we were, we were able to go into, I can't remember now if we started in the ER, if we started, I don't even know where, where I started in that whole journey, but turns out, um, you know, after getting some tests done, um, in which at first they're like, oh, if you're, it's just going to go away. It's so like, I think I didn't go to the ER first and it was just kind of passed over or looked over by a doctor. I was like, maybe I forget what, what the, actually what the, the guess was, but it was like not serious, but things, you know, didn't get better. So then I went in for tests and, you know, they did this one test. I forget like what it's called, but it's essentially a test that, uh, it's a, it's a balance test. And, you put on these goggles and you have to kind of follow the, some light and I don't know, all these different things. And they'll kind of like move your head and see how your vision responds to that. It actually ended up being like a, you know, the doctor was like, there was a, so it was a teaching hospital. And so there was someone shadowing him and he's like, oh my gosh, this is a great case for you to see. Oh, great. That's what you want to hear. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Things were messed up, you know. Um, and so it turns out I had, if I remember, you know, if I can remember the name correctly, it was like vestibular neuritis or whatever. And essentially, I had lost 92% of the function of my right ear. And what that means is this is like your inner ear. And so this controls your balance. And by way of your balance, like that is how your eyesight is calibrated. So like when you're walking, your body knows that you're moving up and down. So it basically tells your eyes to adjust for that. And so with this condition, my right eye in particular was not adjusting for that. Um, and so it took a long time for me to be able to walk, just walking down in the street in the neighborhood when I would try to look across the street at someone else walking, I couldn't tell who they were because my vision was so uncontrolled. I couldn't focus on their face. Um, so it was just a really scary, scary experience. And I didn't know, like, will I be able to run again? Will I be able to bike again? Will I be able to drive again? I couldn't drive for three months. Anyway, I started physical therapy and ended up being in physical therapy for six months. But again, it was also one of those things of, I made really great recoveries, um, although this like this condition is permanent, but you can, you know, cap recalibrate and re relearn how to do things differently. For balance, you have your three senses of proprioception, which is your feeling like through your, through your feet and all that. Then you have the visual, which I so then like I still had in terms of especially if it's not a low light situation. And then you have your 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 um, inner ear balance. So that's where that was definitely compromised. So it's kind of like relearning how to leverage the other two senses more, I guess. But then my, my physical therapist, you know, I still reached a point where I was walking fine and I was doing really well on a lot of these balance tests. Um, but, you know, most of her patients were over the age of 70 or 80. <laughs> so, yeah, because you, had, you, you know, had mentioned that this is something that happens to people when they're older, right? Not to people that are in there. And if you were in, what, your, your 30s? Yeah, yeah. I had basically kind of passed all the physical therapy tests, but, you know, it's still not fully returning to, you know, my capabilities before all of this. Um, and, but, you and you're know, pretty, I, and you're pretty active, right? So the biking yeah. and the running and the, is, is pretty important for that to come back as much as possible. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes those things are still a challenge because they are higher intensity things such that like you're, you are bumping around much more quickly, right? If you're on a bike and it's a bumpy road now, still every one of those bumps has like a small minor movement in my eyes such that if I'm doing it for a long time uh, I get a little like dizzy um, but hoping with with the warmer weather coming and everything uh, I'll, I'll just get out there more often and, and continue to build and calibrate uh, to hopefully be able to tolerate that more I mean I've still gone on a 20 mile bike ride 
um, this past year. So like, that was great. And three months after this whole thing had happened, we went to the Rocky Mountains and I did a 10 or 11 mile hike on like a difficult rating <laughs> hike. I used hiking poles, so that really gave me a lot more confidence. And, you know, my wife only had to grab me by my pants from falling <laughs> uh, down like a crevice uh, one time. So I, I call that a success. Uh, <laughs> so you don't hike alone. <laughs> right, right. Probably okay. not. At least not during, not for those um, crazy, more intense hikes. But I could, I could hike alone here in, in Columbus. Nothing's, nothing's that intense. And we, we do go on hikes pretty often. Again, things have gotten a, a lot better. And when that happened, that was only three months into it. So I still was halfway through physical therapy. So it was pretty ambitious uh, when I did that then. I, I probably could hike alone now, uh, mm-hmm. even on that, even on that trail. Okay. But I get, I get nervous without there being any conditions. Like I, I apparently have a fear of heights, which I didn't realize till I hiked the Grand Canyon. So bring a friend, yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> the mom in me. I'm like, um, is there, I mean, is I, I, I can't even imagine the challenge of going through this. Plus like I get motion sickness really easily just in normal life. And I know we talked about this, that you also would now get motion sickness more easily from this and get dizzy and stuff. Is there anything good from a learning perspective that has come out of it at all? Or has this just been like, it was absolute hell, which I'm sure that it was, and you would never want to go through this or anything, but is there anything good from a learning experience that came out of it? Yeah, I think there's a few different things. One was just I'll, I'll do first some some work based learning experiences, and that was that you know there will be, and this is not the first time, but there will be things that are happening in your life, right, that will require you that you should take a step back from work, and so. You know, and that was a that was a balancing act too in itself because technically I I had full uh, support and you know medical justification for taking a, a full time leave of absence, but I also was doing a really exciting project at the time that I was like, no, I have to see this through. Uh, but so after taking probably three weeks of full time off. I got enough better where, you know, like, cause actually when I first started to, to come back to work because of all this, I actually had hearing issues and vision issues at the beginning. And so like, I couldn't even look at the laptop screen. Like it was crazy. Um, it was just really, I had some photosensitivity too, and all sorts of things were going on. Uh, but after that stuff faded, and it was really just about, I feel like it was about rebuilding my endurance and tolerance to certain activities. Um, so I, I just had enough time to, you know, I, 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 did, well, I didn't need to be doing the project I was doing full time. So I, you know, worked with my client to figure out like, hey, when do you really need this by, you know, et cetera. And so just found a way to still give myself time to heal. Uh, but then, you know, it was at the same time, it was kind of like, it's like when you're going through grief too, it's like, sometimes it is really nice to have something to distract mm, you. Yeah. So it was nice to be able to still spend some time working. But again, I think like the message I want to say there is really that you can take time off. Right. And it was great to have the support to, to do that and to like, I think it's kind of like a reprioritization, right. Of making sure that I am well before worrying about work or anything like that. So that was one thing. And then the other thing I wanted to talk about was having that understanding and awareness in conversation in life and, you know, et cetera. Like, you know, a lot of times topics of disabilities might come up, right? And mm-hmm. something now that I'm more, much more mindful of is the disabilities that are not visible, right? Because there's so many people that, I mean, people are going through all sorts of things and it doesn't even have to be disabilities. It could be just things going on in their 
personal lives, etc. And so having more of that understanding that you don't know what someone else is going through, right? And just having that increased empathy and awareness and just, just, just to realize that you can't see everything going on. Um, so I think that's one really big thing I took away from this. And, and then building on what I was saying earlier was just about, you know, taking more time for yourself in general. So I, I think it was a little bit of a life is short and fragile kind of thing, right? And so I think I really started increasing my vacation planning after that, right? Because I'm like, okay, I really do need to take those time, times off just to completely get away from work and, and really enjoy life, right? Um, and yeah. really enjoy exploring and all that stuff. And so I think that definitely was something that I also got out of that experience. Did you also find, um, and I think, you know, people have different, differing viewpoints on this. Do you find when you go on vacation that you truly disconnect or are you one of those that is still working while you're on vacation? Cause I've, I've, I've changed this over my, over my career, my approach to my approach to vacation. Yeah. Um, I hope that my wife would agree that I've become a lot better at it. In the past year, we went on two big vacations or two vacations where we went away for a whole week. One of them, we went to Washington, the state of Washington. And on that trip, I left my laptop at home. So that was huge. Part of that was driven by the fact that, you know, we were going to be bouncing around a lot of places and we'll be in a, we were going to be an A-frame tent in one of the stops. And so it just really didn't make a lot of sense and, and whatnot. Um, but then it was really awesome to be just laptop free, right? And I, I really was able to completely disconnect during that vacation. And then when we went, when we went to Hawaii, I almost left my laptop but I compromised slightly and was like, okay, I am only allowed to use a laptop on the plane because that is a really long plane ride, like all or multiple plane rides. Right. And I actually love working on the plane because it's like, it, it passes a, the time. Me, yeah, exactly. It passes yeah. the time. So I'm Wait, like, does, okay. that, does that, okay. With, with the issues that you have from motion sickness, is that harder now or is it fine for you? Cause like I, I will have a hard time just sometimes in general, cause I will get motion sickness on a plane. Um, so sometimes it's fine. Sometimes it's not depending on turbulence. Are you one that can, can do that? It sounds like you are. And, but yeah, even the, like after, after your, the challenges that you had. Yeah. The plane doesn't bother me whatsoever. Okay. Um, I think some, the main time where I feel it now is, um, if I'm riding in an Uber or something like that, if I'm in the back seat oh, like of the car, seat. that's probably exacerbated. It was never great before either, mm -hmm. but that's I will I'll probably not even try in those situations. <laughs> but otherwise, for the plane, it's just fortunately, you know, not usually riding through a lot of turbulence, so it's just really really smooth. And then you're obviously also not you don't have the laptops out during takeoff and landing. True. So those are the times where it probably would be harder. But um, just listen to music. So I have one last question for you, which I always ask, and that would be, and I'm going to try to expand this because I think there's a lot more advice that we can give, but generally I ask like what advice you would give to a girl or young woman thinking about going into STEM, but what advice would you give to a girl or young woman just, or anyone just in, in general, do you have any nuggets of advice for people either in STEM or working with people in STEM that you would provide? So I think one follow. I think I, I personally love that. I love to work. Like I love having a job that I, I love doing the work for. Right. Um, so I think I, I know everyone's, I mean, at the same time, everyone's different. Many people who have jobs that, you know, they don't really, you know, still don't really care about their jobs. And also maybe, I mean, maybe it's also healthier in some ways that they don't get as much out of it, you know, and they just see it as a job, but it's just depending on who you are. Like I, I really am passionate about what I do. So, you know, finding and following a path to, to that is along your passion, I think is really important. Um, and then I think just building your, your network 
around you throughout the years i've just always i've maintained a lot of relationships even back to high school teachers and all sorts of people throughout my life of just having those people to you know be able to talk to when you're trying to make a big decision or or if you're going through a tough time continuing to have those relationships and ways to get other perspectives on things too um, so I think that's just always really super useful to have. Yeah, completely agree. And I think relationships are probably, honestly, I, I want to say the most important, maybe one of the most, but I kind of think that they're one of, that they are like the most important thing that you can build over your career or life. Shelly, I am so glad that you came on the podcast and that I've gotten the chance to talk to you some more and that I get to share your story. Cause I think you have such, um, a great, a great story to share. And I am so happy that you are on the podcast. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a really fun time. And so I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of ordinarily extraordinary conversations with women in STEM. You can find a list of definitions, acronyms, and a fact check in the episode notes. If you like this podcast, please like it and write a review. And if you'd like to have more episodes delivered right to you, please feel free to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform. And please join me for future episodes. Thank you. Thank you.